Welcome back to another episode of Unplugged in St Kilda, where we're looking back on the music from the 1970s, 80s and 90s and reminiscing with musicians who lived, jammed and gigged in the area back then. While some of them have ended up moving away from St Kilda, our next guest has stayed. He should really be St Kilda's patron saint of music. Growing up in several places around Australia, he developed a passion for all things Melbourne, footy, cricket and of course music. He's most well known as the frontman of one of Australia's most iconic bands and recently became the lead singer of another outstanding Aussie band. He's released solo albums, a memoir and formed multiple side projects. We hope we can keep him here for good and he'll never leave St Kilda. Welcome Tim Rogers. Hey, you Sally. Thank you for coming in. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Firstly, can you take us through a bit of the journey of your musical career? Sure. Uh, I guess... I was an itinerant uh, family moving around, uh, but there was always good music being played. My parents were amateur musicians or just they did it for pleasure. They were both uh, guitarists and and had great singing voices. And we used to travel a lot from the Nullarbor because I was brought up in Kalgoorlie in Western Australia. And hearing them sing must have got got into us. my brother and sister are also very musical. Uh, and I guess I was in Western Sydney in the mid to late 80s and it became, the thought became um, apparent, oh, we could actually do something. So I just got together with some school friends and and played Led Zeppelin covers and, and Rolling Stones covers and then uh, discovered the live music scene of Sydney, in particular punk rock and hardcore uh, scenes, of which I wasn't in any way a part of, uh, but my brother and my best mate Nick Tischler were, and we'd go and see the Hard-Ons regularly and Mass Appeal and the Hellmen and Asylum, and, uh, sneak into some X shows, um, Crown of Thorns, the Johnnies, and then thought, oh, we could actually do this. And so we formed UMI in about 1989. And that's kind of it, really. It was, uh, and we tried for years and, and got some shows in Western Sydney and then in Sydney. And uh, I moved to Melbourne in 1998. My parents actually grew up in Melbourne. They're from, uh, mum's from Coburg and dad was from Ferntree Gully. But returning to Melbourne in 1998, I mean, in particular, St Kilda. I didn't actually think I could ever move, move to St Kilda. It just seemed too fantastical because I know we're going to get onto it, but what St Kilda's, the impressions that it made upon me when I was young. But Melbourne was very much, even living in Sydney at the time, and it did, Sydney did have a good um, scene. There were a lot of venues to play, but Melbourne was really intimidating and it felt like if you hadn't got a crowd in Melbourne. And it did take us quite a while to get more than you know, friends to shows, uh, that, that getting more than 20 people in Melbourne was a really big feat. So as a musician, you've spent significant time in a lot of different places in the, in the world. What was it about St Kilda that drew you here? Well, again, I, I couldn't believe that I would move here because St Kilda, my introduction to St Kilda was through a band called Boxer Jesuit, who I was, I was asked to be their second guitarist in about 1989, 1990. 
and I was quite unwell mentally and but Box Jesuit who were, if people are unfamiliar, a rock and roll band but with very avant-garde, Grand Guignol, um, everything about them was just larger than life. They were very beautiful people, uh, naughty people. But uh, it was everything was a show, and they were very much into special effects, uh, as in you know uh, just making a big show of it. And Goose, the lead singer, was a master performer and very funny and uh, and absolute hero. And so when we came down to Melbourne to tour a couple of times, uh, we stayed in St Kilda at the Prince of Wales, and. They had a lot of friends around here, Michael Sheridan, John Murphy, beautiful John Murphy. Uh, Ollie Olsen, I was too, in, I was too uh, intimidated to meet back then. But this, uh, I guess, um, St Kilda, again, the intimidating was the first word. I guess I was, I was a pretty timid kid and there are a lot of these characters around. <laughs> but I only met... Uh, those folks uh, through uh, through Goose and through Box Jesuit, and they just seemed uh, oh, I couldn't give a damn at that stage about I don't know Johnny Thunder's Paddy Smith da, 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 da. these people. I mean, meeting for example Michael Sheridan or uh, Johnny Murphy, who had played on you know, no record, very much the um, music that I didn't know much about actually. Because because I was much more in just a straight rock and roll or, or light, the lighter side of punk, definitely not into um, noise, industrial dance music, like. But uh, got introduced to it through meeting these characters who really were just, again, larger than larger than life. Left a good impression on you. Good. <laughs> I, I just knew <laughs> I was really impression. out of my depth, and uh, you know, backstage at Box Desert shows. It really was like, oh, gee, it, it seemed like a, a film set. It, me and my Aerosmith T-shirt and then people would just be, you know, exploding hair. and uh, But always very, Box Jesuit attracted smart people and funny people. It was, there was posturing going on, but everyone who I met to then had, had real wit. And I guess there were only folks in their mid to late 20s, early 30s at the most. Goose died when he was 33, you know, but massive impression. I think the, the, the lasting impression was that you had to be a good hang. You couldn't just lounge around and you had to have good stories and, and be funny. Because yep. Box Jesuit, apart from being a phantasmagoric experience, they're very funny people, all of them, even the, the quieter, you know, dear Phil and Patrick. And, um, but everyone was really funny. I remember the first tour we drove down in a, Hire van and it took 17 hours to get from Sydney to Melbourne. Three times uh, nominated drivers had nodded off at the wheel, but we'd stop at every op shop on the way. And when we got to Melbourne, Susie, our violinist and, and still you know, such a dear friend, lost her voice from laughing so hard. Goose was having problems <laughs> singing because everyone was just laughing so much. And um, so that, that was the legacy I remember, that you had to be funny. So I tried to accumulate stories really quick when uh, UMI first came down yeah. because we, I think the first UMI show was out at Geelong and I met uh, folks from the Pop and Mamas and, and um, folks who knew Bored, you know, um, someone who knew Joel Silvershire, you know, and so uh, 
again, I just really thought, oh, I've got to get a personality real quick. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And Tim, your high school years were spent in Sydney's Hills District, like mine. The later ones, yeah. yeah. Yep. Where did you go, sorry? Um, Mount St. Benedict. Penny Mount Hills. St. Benedict's. <laughs> yes. I, yes, I... I had some um, short and fleeting romances. Oh, with, I'm uh, sure Oak Hill and Benny's. They yeah, were, that was a, with the light blue uniform. Mountain light Benedict, blue uniform. Right? Yes, I think it's changed now. But uh, yeah. Therese Dreiser, who's still one of my very best friends in the world, went to Mount St Benedict's, and then before she came to to Oak Hill, and yep, uh, I only got to Oak Hill in about year nine. I was in Adelaide before that. Yeah, uh, after Perth, and yeah, it was, it was interesting being in a private school for one. Uh, I'd, I'd sort of mixed public and private schools during my school years and, and being in one of those schools where it seemed to have something. It was a big rugby school. It I killed. was, yeah. So I kind of kept my head low and because I wanted to just play footy and cricket and then because they had a music school and the musical they had a couple of little amplifiers and, and some guitars and that was pretty much how I got to playing with other people was, was yeah. at school. So I'm really thankful for that. Excellent. The Hills, oh, man, it's changed. It has wow. changed. That's changed. I mean, it was kind of, I guess, the burgeoning Bible Belt back then, but now yeah, it's just full right. tilt. Yeah, the Hillsong yep. malarkey's out there, and um, that's where all the expensive music equipment went. Apparently, oh, there you go. So, I guess compared to the Hills District, St Kilda, or the Hills District at the time, St Kilda would have been such a big move, you know, with its arts opportunities and um, different lifestyle. Yeah, before I moved to Melbourne and St Kilda, I was living, uh, I was out in Castle Hill, Borkham Hills, and Canberra for a few years where I went to university, went to law school there, then in a Western Sydney. And there was a lot going on musically. Uh, a lot of bands going on. So a very fecund period where you could play three or four nights a week. So by the time I came down to St Kilda in Melbourne, I guess what I enjoyed about firstly coming to Melbourne was meeting folk and country musicians. First, uh, that was just from drinking at pubs like the Dan O'Connell uh, and a lot of pubs in Fitzroy and Jan Anderson from Weddings Parties, anything would walk in or... Meet Mick Thomas um, and uh, Squeezebox Wally, Pete Lawler, these these people who I loved so much. So meeting them was a big deal. And then I guess coming down to St Kilda, what made it okay to come to St Kilda was that I spent a couple of nights at Joel Silvish's house because I think he was sharing with Colky at that time and it was just around here actually. Uh, and so you and I played, maybe it was 97, oh, maybe it was the Greville Park shows, Greville Records shows out in the car park. And I met up with Joel after then and, and I loved him and a big admirer. And then he said, oh, well, you know, come round to my place and, you know, smoke and drink. And, and I did. And that was my first um, house experience in St Kilda. And, and Joel is such a big figure in my life. And I thought, oh, yeah, I can live here because St Kilda did have that intimidation. Mm. You walk down the street and oh, there'd be Ian Ryland. Oh, there's Steve Lucas. There's mm, big characters, you know. Yep. And I guess those nights at Joel's were funny. And also a big thing with Melbourne Sally was that people would invite you back to their homes. And that didn't happen a lot in Sydney. There were house parties. But we used to go to Tom from Smudge's house a lot to have parties. But then... In Melbourne, whether it was north side or south side, people would go, oh, pubs closed, come around to my joint and, you know, drink and 
take drugs and make toasts or and you'd sort of wake up in the morning in um, Windsor or, or yeah. St Kilda. And so by the time I moved down, I was, oh, okay, this is where, uh, where home can be. And my daughter was born very soon after that. I think my wife at the time and I moved to St Kilda when she was very heavily pregnant. So it, yeah. it became a family place for us. Yeah. You know? Now, in your book, Detours, you mentioned that Melbourne always felt like the throbbing heart of all that was raw, tough and righteous about the music that enthralled me. Can you tell me more about that? Oh, I think I explained it pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> In, the, in a similar way, I was just think I was speaking to someone about Brisbane the other day, and Brisbane still had that, and Adelaide had a bit of that, and Perth had a little bit of that, and but Melbourne, it was just there was just so much more of it. Uh, the history was more fecund to myself. Rusty joining the band, we got all those stories because Rusty, even though he's from WA like I am, he'd been in had been in Melbourne since maybe '84. And he'd played so much and was such a social, not butterfly, social genius just because he's the smartest guy in, in the world. So we got to meet a lot of characters through Russ. Just seemed to be a lot more going on. And I still haven't been to a city. In London, for example, we were living there, or Los Angeles, you meet a lot of people who are involved in music somehow, not quite sure how. In Melbourne, you'd run the people who really were yeah. hands-on. Lockie Lockwood, you know, um, not only a great mixer but ran labels, you know, spooky records and folks who would um, get their hands dirty, you know, Dave Lang from Dogmeat. Dog I mean, not a St Kilda fella but Scotty um, from Fantastic Mess Records now and just people who really got involved and, and either made zines or labels or, or played and the people who played or were involved in music in other ways was just a big melange of people. There wasn't the, any hierarchies. I'm, I'm sure there, there might have been, but from an outsider coming in, it seemed like everybody just messed about together. Yeah. Uh, except for me who was covered in velvet and everyone else uh, was in far more rotund, uh, robust fabrics. I really did feel very silly when... Um, <laughs> overdressing like that, which was my way of deflecting attention away from my face. But um, it, it stood out a little like a like a, a velvet thumb amongst Melbourne because oh. it just seemed that Melbourne people, because a big what made a big impression was that people were good conversationalists and fans knew a lot about records or about comics or about films and and I was just, in dressed in corduroy and and said, does anybody else like Aerosmith? Uh, whereas Melbourne folks, I guess because of the there were so many good record stores around and public radio, of course. Yeah, people knew a lot more about origins and the current um, music scenes all around the world. Everyone seemed to be very verbose in uh, culture. All right, and. You've spoken a lot about St Kilda over the time, but um, in particular the late 90s when you moved here. What was that like as opposed to, say, now or when you were younger? I guess because I was in a young family. My daughter was born and growing up. There was a lot of um, kindergarten and <laughs> primary school. But I guess meeting people like Freddie Negro, um, Steve Prichter, 
uh, going to the Greyhound when uh, I'd kind of go when I could, <laughs> when I wasn't <laughs> looking after Ruby uh, a little too much. Uh, meeting those folks, um, I just met a lot of really wonderful people. Um, I got mistaken a lot, mistook a lot for, for others. I get, people would talk to me or ask me about, Oh, the bad seeds, for example, to which I had to say, oh, I don't have anything. <laughs> I think you're mistaking me for somewhere, someone else. There was a bit of that. Those, a lot of people are still around. A lot of people aren't. I mean, I guess health and, um, but I, well, this band I started with my friend Mick, Mick Sayers, who's a lifelong St Kilda resident. He and I got together with Evan Richards, another St Kilda genius and uh, Jack Davies who was li- uh, living around St Kilda at the time with his partner Georgia we wanted to get the, uh, this band the Draft Dodgers together to be a St Kilda band because I guess there are a f- few like-minded folks men and women around who were sick of being told oh St Kilda's not what it used to be and it's just not but, but either are we mm-hmm. but we thought well bugger this we want to we rehearsed at Lost on Barclay Street. Beautiful Sepha let us rehearse there. We wanted to be in a St Kilda band just because, one, we were friends and um, and wanted to make music, but um, we're just sick of being told oh, St Kilda's not what it used to be. We're like, mm. fuck you, we're... Either are we, but there's still... You're going to do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that obviously venues, I mean, going past the Greyhound still... Like pang a little bit. I didn't spend a hell of a lot of time there, but but still too much. And seeing that raised is very disappointing. Uh, I love what um, you know what Seth's got going on at Lost. I mean, even the Claypots when they'd be playing original music in the in the bar, they used to love. It was different different style of music. It wasn't rock and roll, but that's great. It was beautiful gypsy folk musician and jazz musicians down there. Um, what Dave was doing at Pure Pop. Was fantastic, and that going has hurt the dogs bar. Going, I mean, what a brilliant group of of people running that joint, and to hear their struggles has been very difficult. You kind of want to, like, with getting the draft dodgers together, and we're available, by the way, <laughs> uh, as a defiant but very fun. If I'm, but then, you know, George Lane going on at the moment. I love what's going on there. Um, not Never want to whinge about anything, in particular over the past two years, and people say, gee, being a musician must have been hard over the past couple of years. My response is to go, yeah, well, I just got gardening jobs and, you know, painting jobs, painted a couple of pubs, whatever. But it is difficult not to feel very sorry for people who, who get venues together or get initiatives initiatives going. Um, you know, Susie Dole getting a lot of stuff going on with everything at the Alex and the Alex Theatre. And uh, I guess that there are enough people who don't want to lament about what St Kilda's, what's happened to the way it was. And it's just that you just got to go digging for it a little deeper. Yeah. There's always going to be crappy pubs and and crap music spilling out of clubs and uh, we just have to dig a little harder. And I guess uh, 
like people who were admonishing the Sydney music scene about five or six years ago hear that a lot. And I was hanging a lot in Marrickville at the time with Rusty and Andy where they live. And I said, but there's things going on in, in warehouses and breweries all around here. It's just not in the venues that you remember. So I'm sure that there's house parties and, you know, just just follow bloody Louie and Stacey Palmer around. You'll find a gig, you know, that there's... <laughs> <laughs> There's people around who are doing stuff. I, I guess it just means you folks have got to just dig a little deeper. Yep. Um, could you tell us about any buildings in St Kilda that are meaningful to you? Maybe a place you've lived in or rehearsed or maybe a venue? When I mentioned before we we stayed at the Prince of Wales with Box Jesuit, there was a slice of pizza on the ceiling. When the, in, when the residences upstairs, the ceilings were about 12, 15 feet high. That's the way I remember it anyway. And there was this bit of pizza that was hanging about three inches from the ceiling and it was just held by coagulated cheese. Uh, I always remember that because I've um, spent some very silly evenings with Tex in the, the rooms upstairs and the prints when we've been their guests. Whatever awful we've done in hotel rooms, we clean up after we leave. <laughs> the prints and a lot of good times there. It was the last time I spoke to, second last time I spoke to Spence there and the last time I spoke yep. to, to, to Brian Hooper and remember very fondly for those reasons. The Astor Theatre, yeah. uh, where I heard they used to have gigs. Susie and the Banshees played there and, and there was a, here you go again, a bad seed show there back then. I got married in the Astor Theatre. Oh, wow. Um, I love that building and I love that they're still going. It's an eternal struggle there. Yeah, yeah. Eternal struggle. Uh, I like what Seth is doing at Lost, uh, the ever-moving the ever moving. Lost, but one's from from the past. Nowadays, I, I love going to to grab a couple at at Yellowbird on on Chapel Street. Yep. You know, that, and what's happening to Windsor? Mm. I guess it's mostly restaurants, which you know. By the by, I'm not really that interested in food, but I'm glad it's there. <laughs> um, I get the feeling that there'll be something venue-wise going on there. There just seems there's a lot of population going there when I walk yeah, down there. So it seems yeah, to be there a lot always going seems on. to be a lot going on there these days. Yeah, as far as running venues, I don't really know what's involved these days as licensing and the like. When I was, I was work, back working at the ESPY, that's I've completely forgotten about that, but I got asked, I asked the Esplanade when it reopened, I asked them what's going on with the basement and the owners who I really like, they said, well, it's going to be open. I said, well, what about if I open it as a bartender? And they said, oh, come on, Timmy, surely you want to run a night there? I said, well, I just, I just want to bartend. You know, I was looking to get out of playing and touring because it was making me very unhappy and I was getting pretty unhealthy again. Um, what I needed to do to think I could go on to, to do to tour. And so getting out of touring, I thought, well, just – bartend and, and uh, you know, the SB isn't what it used to be, but neither are we. Uh, but the basement, I thought, well, I could work here because they don't make cocktails and <laughs> and you can sling beers and, and um, maybe put on music because it's still a great little stage there. And so they said, well, you can have one night a week doing the Roger Stein Lounge or whatever you want to call it. And we had um, nights down there, which was great fun. And then I said, look, can I get some other shifts? And so I was doing about four or five shifts a week just down at the basement, and it was great. We had, um, you know, the 
blues afternoon on Saturday and, and um, Steve Lucas had come down uh, and other acts that were great. And I loved talking to folks who came down there. I loved working at the ESPY. Uh, and it was interesting because you'd be down there and the first night I was there, I was by myself. I'd just got my uh, bartending licence back, um, my RSA, and I thought, okay, this is all right. And, but then waves of people came down from, for lack of a better term, corporate Christmas parties upstairs, yeah. which has a different clientele, I guess. And folks come down and they were so, to a person, so fucking rude mm-hmm. and so rude. And I didn't want to have that, um, you know, faux little culture or, hey, come on, this is the home of bloody scuzzy rock and roll Fuck you, corporate types. I don't, I don't kind of buy into that. You know, if you play someone the right record, they're going to get into good music. I, I still want to believe, but man, it was it was difficult because uh, people were awful. Folks who came down to the basement because they liked just the we were playing good records, um, and you it was just quieter. And you, it, we wanted to promote it as somewhere where you could talk. But at a certain point, let's just play records and, you know, maybe lose a bit of clothing and dance a little. And, um, but that was a bit of a slap in the face because I didn't want to think the worst of people. And because I love the people who own the ESPY and run it, and they did, yeah, it's what they did. Uh, it's not aesthetically to, to some people's aesthetics. But I, the SP was in, from what I can gather, in a lot of trouble as a business before all that went on. I'm not a businessman. I don't know. I've got some great memories of the joint, and let's just celebrate those those memories. I don't hang out at the SP much. They've asked me to go back and and bartend, but I'm just not. I'm enjoying not being around people, and um, but still have a lot of affection for it. Yeah. A lot of good people. Yeah, first night, and a, and a lady came and said, "Make me fifty-two cocksucking cowboys." And <laughs> oh Christ, here we go! <laughs> wouldn't you? Wouldn't you prefer a, a flipping pot? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the long since demolished palace, uh, which is a legendary venue here in St Kilda, or was, mm. played a bit of a role in the rise of UMI. Um, is it true that Soundgarden offered you an opening slot on an upcoming US tour after they watched you from the side stage on a big day outside show there? Yeah, it, I don't know if that was a big day outside show. I think they were out just by themselves first. Uh, I think this is right. Uh, they did their own tour and we were supporting them and they were just extremely kind and generous, and yeah, they offered us a tour, and then they came back for the big day, and we played, we toured with them again. They became really good friends, like uncles to us. And their manager Susan Silver, uh, who was Chris's wife at the time, was really put a put a neck out for us. But yeah, that happened at the Palace. I think I'm, we played with them at the um, at Festival Hall. Maybe it was a couple of years later, and but I'm pretty sure the Palace was. Uh, we played with the Strokes there when we asked them yeah. on a tour. I think that was the last time we played there. We asked them and then in the four weeks from asking them to them landing here, they became the biggest band in the land. That was really some, the biggest band in the world. That was quite something to watch. 
saw a lot of relationships break up on that. Too. <laughs> <laughs> handsome guys. Yeah. Um, yeah, the palace was great. I've got an incredible story that's not mine that Tim Hemsley used to mm. tell uh, about. I got a, my favourite Tim story. I think I did the Powder Monkey side last recording session. I was, I actually just got sent a record by Timmy Jack Ray today. Um, and, you know, John passing the other month. Uh, but I did a session with them at Sing Sing Studios in maybe 2002, 2003. And, and I got to hang out with Tim and John a lot, which was really something. But I used to see Tim often walking around here or up Chapel Street with headphones on. And he'd be really, <laughs> you know, quite a physical specimen. And um, him watching him listen to music made me love music even more than listening to whatever he was listening to. And he's got a story about supporting the cult at the palace that is so out, flipping outrageous. That I, I, if you forgive me, Sally, I can't tell you now, but I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it um, certified, <laughs> and I'll be able to tell you. But it involves the cult, yep. a masturbating male member of their road crew, wow. and Tim and John walking in on it. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Yeah. Um, leave it to our imagination. <laughs> yeah, and I ran into John at a Powerline Sneakers show about three years ago and I said, John, is, is that story you told me true? And he went, oh, Timmy, it's so true. Oh. I walked in and, and oh, man. <laughs> Unfortunately, Seems... when you mentioned the palace, that's the first memory that's that comes That's the first out. memory. And I wasn't even there. It's not my memory. It's, it's, it's <laughs> Tim Johnny's Timmy Jack's. At, oh, Struth. <laughs> the palace. So overall, what impact has St Kilda had on you and you and your music? Uh, my music, I don't know about writing. I mean, it's just where I wrote a lot of stuff. Again, it's it's all very much associated with my daughter being born. And so I guess the impact isn't dissimilar lingering effect was than, than it was at, at the outset that I met, uh, I didn't, have never been anywhere where there's been such a intense meeting of really, really funny, smart people who happen to be mu musicians. I guess there was that. Now, whether where's the legacy of St Kilda and that? I guess because St Kilda maybe was the, the seaside resort for the rich. That's where it started. And then it became the land of the Demimonde, late 70s, early 80s. The first time, I the only time I met Roland Howard was on Fitzroy Street. Mm -hmm. And Nick Sester, the lead singer of uh, Jet and also brilliant um, songwriter apart from the band, uh, he invited me to lunch at, what's that beautiful restaurant on Fitzroy Street, expensive Italian joint? Oh, um, um, D'Astasio. D'Astasio, yeah, yeah. Yep, down the end there. Yeah, and Nick said, let's go to D'Astasio. How can we eat at D'Astasio? And he said, yeah, it's been a good year. So I went, okay, Nick. Oh. And we were eating outside and drinking and, and Roland walked by and it was he was walking in the reverse direction of that great footage of Roland and Ollie walking down Fitzroy Street in probably 78. And he was walking in the reverse direction but still with the same loping walk and, and he knew Nick. He, I, I don't believe he knew me but we we stopped and had a chat. That was something else. So why I bring that up is one, to name drop. <laughs> and then like, there's always just been a real humour with 
It's interesting watching that documentary, uh, Living on Dog Food, and the interview with the primitive calculators who are very much a northern suburbs band and they say, oh, St Kilda was arty-farty and uh, this is where stuff was more visceral and and, and I'm not going to disagree with that because it's fucking primitive calculators, you know, they're fucking genius. But St Kilda, I never saw as arty-farty. I saw as you had to have a really good sense of humour. I didn't go up here, but I came here late and the band had already done a bit and I was um, a young father. So whether it was, you know, from from Prichter and, and Freddie Negro, I mean, St Kilda and Fred, it just goes, for me anyway, it goes hand yeah. in hand. I, I love that man. And so the humour, I mean, even the pub strip and the way that Fred would depict the bar scene of St Kilda and, and the first time he put me in there, I think he drew me with a very large penis and uh, swing my arm around like the way I play guitar and I'd never been asked about, or that week after that pub strip came out and suddenly people I didn't even know would go, oh, I saw you in pub strip. I think, yeah, I released a record called, uh, you know, Ali Daily a couple of years ago. and uh, <laughs> But no, it was being in Fred's pub strip wow. that was more notorious than anything I've ever done. Nick Barker says the same. He yeah. reckons that when he was put in Freddie's strip, He's he became more popular than anything he's ever been he's ever Aww. released. So, so the legacy I guess and was is you can be good and and look good and 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 play great, but geez, you got to be a good hang and you got to have a good sense of humour and humor. and be a good storyteller. Yeah, and that still, still exists. You know, when you run into Kim Volkman up the road or, or um, just folks who who still live around here who made music, um, got to be a good hang. Yep. Excellent. Um, now, on the other hand, um, what impact do you think you and your music has had on St Kilda? Absolutely nothing. Nothing? No, no. No, I guess uh, as long as I've lived here, I'm still a Sydney musician to the <laughs> folks who live in Melbourne, which is fine. I, and uh, if they say, oh, you're Sydney, I say, no, I'm Kalgoorlie. I didn't spend much time in Kalgoorlie, but that's where I'm born. That's where my roots are. But the um, so no, 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 I'm just another interloper. And oh. even though St Kilda's home, and I love it, and it will, I've lived here longer than anywhere I've ever lived. I remember when I started working at the SB and uh, Ruth, my my friend Ruth, who Ruth Allen, who ran Barney Allen's on Fitzroy Street, which is my favourite pub for years and years and, and I loved hanging out that joint. And I guess now Misery Guts on Grey Streets that is my personal favourite. Johnny Surabise is great, but Misery Guts and Jules, Mel, what they're doing there, that's a great venue and I love playing there. People don't listen, but I love <laughs> playing there because it's Jules and Misery Guts. But um, when I started working at the SB, Ruth Allen said, Tim's a person who knows what community's about and loves this community and he'll be a good bartender for you. And that was the greatest compliment because I think Ruth's just a wonderful, wonderful person. And, and I took that, it was very emotional to read that because she knows about community. And, I, that, and then after 25 years or something of living here, I thought, wow, I'm, she thinks I'm a St Kilda person. All right, now I'll go and get the tattoo, you know. Uh it's it's home and and for Ruby, my daughter, it's still home. She's a New York yeah. kid. She's lived there since she was eleven. But when she comes 
to Melbourne. You know, St Kilda's definitely home. It's a home. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I think she's a little bit aware of the music history here. Her mum definitely is. Uh, her mum, who's from Madrid, knows a lot about um, the history of St Kilda music. And again, that was a bit of an introduction. She'd say, Tim, you, you didn't see the Olympic sideburns? Or, and I go, no, I didn't. I'm, and, you know, friends with some of those people, but I, I like hearing that, that which I, from from other people. You know, you, yeah. when you're travelling through France, I was there with the Draft Dodgers three years ago and, and a lot of people asked me, oh, hey, what's St Kilda like these days, you know? What's going on with the venues, Tim? Uh, just say they, they still sell beer. <laughs> there's, I'm sure there's a few, maybe a dozen places I've missed out and people definitely, but I get excitable and I've been at work this morning. I'm a little bit fuzzy. <laughs> Not hungover though. No, no, that's good. Um, so why do you feel the suburb of St Kilda has been so important for live music? I think for people wanting to learn how to play music, I think boredom's more important than having a lot of places to play. I'll, I'll get around get to my point. And not having places to play forces you into your room to, to work on your uh, an instrument or your lyrics or your music or your painting. Uh, so... I don't think you necessarily don't think you necessarily need a fecund environment to become a, a good artist or to get that fire in your belly. I think boredom's more important mm. and the lack of things. But people used to and will and do and will in the future. Um, I, you know, it's pretty obvious to everyone that backpacker culture is the preeminent one in St Kilda, and that's what it is. It's not my favourite, but. I don't know, if a bar like Misery Guts gets money off backpackers, then fine. And, you know, kids travelling the world, great, you know, good good on them. But um, St Kilda used to have a lot of venues around. I love to believe it will again because of the legacy and the stories in the walls and mm. <laughs> all that, but also because even just something, the beautiful bay is there. You see the Palais, that's where the palace used to be. You can see bloody Tex walking around occasionally when he's in town. It still gives me a thrill. He's my fucking one of my closest mates. But they go, there's Burgo <laughs> walking around to Gilda. And how beautiful St Kilda is. And yet there's that beautiful outdoors and you can see um, people with very little clothing walking up the street and looking beautiful. But you turn a corner and there's a demonic, syphilitic-looking characters drinking in a bar there. I love that it's not one or the other. Yeah, yeah. Um, what would be a comparison worldwide? I'm not exactly sure. Uh, there's beautiful parts of New York and then there's still sc scummy little places. You just have to go a little further out. But St Killer, it seemed that you could be at the beach one minute seeing very healthy people and then mm. five minutes later you see the unhealthiest people you've ever seen and um, uh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's got a lot with, to do with the accessibility of the area as well, like just that it's easy to get to. From, oh, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's that's a really good point. Yeah, and very practical. Here I am off of yeah, oh. ferry, but <laughs> the accessibility, John, I guess, yeah, walking up Barclay Street and, you know, 
turn left before you get to my place. And there's Johnny Surabaya's, you know, that, and that's a great pub and it's really, really small, but everyone playing music there is generally really good and they've got to be good storytellers because you can hear everything that people are talking about. Um, and, you know, what's going on at George Lane, what's going on at Lost, you know, it's still there. Still you know, there. You just, and I just hope that the people who have... Um, put so much time into those venues that if things start happening that people still give their business to the, those businesses that have really stuck it out because they've stuck it out, man. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, Dave Evans has a lot of stories about the pure pop uh, story and he's a very good writer and, and raconteur and can tell that story and it's it's sad. Uh there are other stories out there and, and I guess that we, yeah, just give these businesses and, and people our love and and frequent them. and Very important. Yeah, it's yeah. the thing, you know, because I don't put my money over the bar much these days and, and don't go out much. But I, I, so during the past couple of years I it was nice to slip some notes under the closed doors of those venues and, and – um, I was about to say anonymously. Here I am declaring that. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have anything else you want to share about St Kilda before we wrap up? Not really. I apologise for the the lot of stories and people and and venues that I've forgotten, but I don't um, lament what St Kilda used to be for me because I think it will come around again for reasons you've talked about. Just that's, that's all really. Excellent. You know, if the draft dodgers can get together thinking we're going to be a St Kilda band and, you know, we're all fucking dropkick hacks <laughs> apart from Evan, Jack and Mick. But <laughs> we want it to be a St Kilda band. We feel very proud of Sounds that. Sounds wonderful. And that parochialism came from its history but also contemporary St Kilda. That It's not the Doyen anymore. You know, Coburg's kind of the centre of cultural or Footscray or um, is um, maybe Sunshine's got a great punk rock scene or and that should make you want to be a St Kilda band even more, you know. Yeah. I wanted to be in a St Kilda band, you know. I was a, yeah, I think when everyone you and I come down here and for twenty three years, you know, oh, he's that Sydney guy. Still I'm oh. he's, he's that Sydney guy. <laughs> oh <Hey>. no. <laughs> That's fine. I I got you know for a while I was, you know. Got, yeah. Um that you should always have band meetings at those venues, also at the back bar at Chichilina. And, you know, when you get paid for shows, then you go and eat at Chich. Yeah. Still the greatest restaurant in the world. <laughs> um, uh, things like that. I mean, you know, when there's businesses like that, you know. Yeah. And Chichilina is, is the flipping best. And so, and when, you know, when we'll see what's happened going on at Dog's, Dog's Bar and what, mm. you know, what's going on um, with, with Gavin and, and the former owners of there. Yeah, just get out and pay for your drinks, pay for your soda waters, <laughs> pay for your chips. Sounds good. And don't talk when a quiet act is playing. If you go and see something, flip and listen to it. For Christ's sakes, it drives me nuts. If you hold oh, your waste the experience. Oh, I think you'd waste the experience, yeah. I mean, I'm not talking about myself, I don't care. But <laughs> when you're going to there's music playing, if you want to talk Go somewhere else. There's yeah. go outside. Oh, 
fuck's sake. Drives I don't get it. the wall. We, the, the, we talk about it quite a bit, myself and Davey, you know, people going, I miss live music, I miss live music. And then you go and, go and see shows and let me talk over the live music. Anyway, <laughs> you're missing out on the experience. That's just my recommendation. Yep. Tim, I'm so thankful for your time here in the studio today talking about your time in St Kilda. It's been really wonderful to hear your stories and chat about the place we call home. We can't wait to hear what you're up to next. Well, the hard-ons are playing the Aspie pretty soon. So that's, Excellent. that's history revolving In the itself. making. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just revolving. And, revolving, and, um, yep. I know the hard-ons had a lot of really good experiences here as well, and that's the gig that is the centrepiece of the tour. So so what date is that one? Oh, i got no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'll look yeah. it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, thanks, Sally. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tim. Here in St Kilda, we're not only lucky to be able to look back on the awesome music and rock heroes we had here back in the day, we've still got so much local talent here to be proud of. Join me for more episodes of Unplugged in St Kilda as we discover what makes the area so influential for both budding and experienced musicians. Thanks for tuning in. You're going home in the back of a divvy van. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to thank the St Kilda Historical Society and its committee for the opportunity to carry out this project and for all their support along the way. The Historical Society does a lot of work throughout the year to preserve the history of our local area and make it accessible for all. Members pay $20 a year to join and receive three newsletters per year full of information and great stories. They have events throughout the year, including local history walks, talks and presentation of new research. See their website, stkildahistory.org.au, for more information. Our local council, the City of Port Phillip, does so much to support the magnificent arts here in St Kilda. A big thank you to the council for their funding in this podcast series as part of their Cultural Development Fund. Thank you for seeing the value of this project and, in particular, thank you to Sharon Dawson for your guidance along the way. We look forward to seeing the other projects from this round of funding come to fruition as well. Sending out a big thank you to the animals for their assistance with the promotional side of this project. The animals are a one-stop shop for advertising, brand building and idea generation and have collaborated with many companies both here in Melbourne and around Australia. See their website, theanimals.com.au, for more. The Unplugged in St Kilda podcast was recorded at Big Ears Audio, 97 Wellington Street, St Kilda. I'd like to take a moment to thank Tony, Adrian, Laz and their team for doing such a brilliant job recording, editing and producing the series and for their professional advice along the way. And last but not least, I'd like to thank my wonderful volunteers who helped me put this series together, all the artists who gave their time for interviews and to you, the listener, for joining me. I've had a great time creating this project and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you.